and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads, episode 34, where we are talking about Buddhism and Buddhist texts, or the Buddhist textual tradition. Um, today, we, uh, we are coming off both, I guess, a kind of holiday break de facto, and uh, some, some personal stuff, so we, we uh, uh, also... Um, you know, we just wanted to have a little bit more of a laid-back episode. Um, before we get into that, I uh, should mention I am your host, Dharma Kirti, joined as always by the squad today, comprised of Aura Taxonomy and Yamnaya Mindset, if you guys want to say hi. Hello. Hello, everyone. And So, yeah, so today, and as I mentioned, we wanted to talk about um, Buddhist texts. You know, we've been reading this um, this wonderful philosophical text by Nagarjuna, the, the Mula Madhyamaka or, or the root verses of the middle way, and the, uh, or the, what is it, the, I don't know, it depends on how you want to, that's how it's sort of standard translated, you can, you can translate it other ways, I guess, the, the, the verses that are the root of the middle way, maybe, uh, is a little bit, a little bit nicer, um, but the, the, um, I guess one of the one of the impetuses for this was something that uh, got a little bit of uh, notoriety on Twitter, which was uh, Sticks and Hammer six six six. Is it Sticks and Hammer six six six? Is that actually in his thing, or I don't even know. Sticks Hex and Hammer. For Sticks Hex and Hammer. Okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yes, cringe Satanist libertarian Trump bro uh, said something to the effect of. Um, what was it? Yeah, Yamna, yeah, uh, you, you were the yeah, one who, yeah, he was, please. He was saying, like, religion is like reading one book for the rest of your life, and spirituality is like having the entire library. It's... <laughs> right, and so part of what's going on there is, obviously, there's a distinction between, so you know, quote-unquote religion and quote-unquote spirituality that any I think anyone who's actually <laughs> has any religious knowledge or spiritual depth to them can tell you like the only people who would who would make that kind of a distinction are people who think of themselves as spiritual but their their spirituality is extremely shallow uh not grounded in anything not particularly not grounded in any kind of tradition and um and it's just not a <laughs> that's just not a tenable kind of distinction that doesn't make any sense to say and, that you know um, you, you could be spiritual without being religious that is that is nonsense and we could talk about maybe that i don't know some other time or if, if people I, I feel like that's pretty self-explanatory because i'm a nonsense. contrarian i always like to say that i'm religious but not spiritual <laughs> yeah right <Yes>. <laughs> right <laughs> exactly which like i you know in a certain sense that actually like yeah i mean, I mean for certain I'm joking values, mostly, well, the other side of course. it is i think that his whole reference point is basically american style evangelical christianity which is maybe right. to some extent where that is actually true i well i don't want to dunk on it you know evangelicals too hard they, well, they no no but but like, but I, I mean it's it is there's a whole kind of interesting question there right about what is the relationship between religious traditions and textual traditions obviously what he means what he meant when he said that was you know christians so to speak in particular uh value the bible right and and the bible is sort of the be all end all to them and they don't really have to think about anything else or read anything else or have any other kind of knowledge other than knowledge of this one you could call the bible one text actually it's you know it's a composite and there's many texts within it and blah 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 but the the thing is even you know i just is even as a general matter for christianity in particular or really any religious tradition you know, even you know in in some ways islam is actually that that's kind of true with regard to the quran 
like you know it's more that's a more accurate statement about the Quran in relation to Islam than it would be about the Bible they even call themselves then, I mean, the, the, the religion of the, book. of the book right but at the same time even then it's like okay but Islam yes you have the Quran and the Quran occupies the central place but you have all these you know you have the hadith you have all these like legal texts you have all that's kinds right. of huge textual tradition that goes that's along right. with that it's not like anyone even the most extreme fundamentalist islamist jihadi muslim is not like well i got the Quran and that's all i need that's absolutely false that's just not true at any level it, very much the same way for the christian tradition there's there's you know you know particularly in in the apostolic churches primarily um Roman Catholicism and, and Eastern and Oriental Orthodoxy, uh, you know, there's the writing of the church, rather the writings of the church fathers. There's, um, you know, various sermons. There's, you know, people like uh, John Chrysostom. There's, you know, theological texts. There's obviously also modern literature. I mean, there's a huge amount of textual material um, that, that goes into even those religions that val that that valorize this one particular text. You know, the Bible or or, or the Quran or whatever. For for Buddhism, uh, and I guess this you know we're this is a Buddhist primarily podcast, and that's what we're talking about here. Uh, that's even more. I mean, it's 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 so laughable. It's kind of a it's 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 um, if you're if you're like if you know enough to know how Buddhism works in terms of like the all the sort of the, just the massive amount, even just quantity wise of textual material in the Buddhist tradition, it, it's like you, you would I mean you just laugh. There's nothing to really respond to there it's just a hilarious kind of assertion to make um before you even get into things like the the, the wide variety of genres and 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 so on i mean you have you know um just so it's just such a rich textual tradition i i heard one guy sort of derisively say he was sort of a, a new agey guy um but he, in a sense he wasn't wrong he said you know buddhism uh, i think he was actually particularly talking about tibetan buddhism but he said uh what was it that that buddhism is a is a is a literary tradition with like some kind of meditation thing attached a little bit, but they, they really, it's a literary tradition. And there, I mean, there's, that's a caricature, but it's, it's not completely wrong in the sense that there's just so much material going back thousands of years. It's, 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 a, it's an intensely literary tradition in ways that I, I, you know, I'm not like a, I don't know. I'm not a world scholar on any of this kind of stuff, but I, I don't know. I don't think there's any tradition that really compares I guess you, Hinduism, you could say in certain ways, like for, you know, whatever, however you want to define Hinduism. But, um, yeah. Do you guys have any thoughts first? I mean, I don't even think the leave. volume of material in Hinduism is quite as is, is as substantive. Like um, I mentioned in, in comment to, what, to that Sticks and Hammer post, something to the tune of the shortest version of the Buddhist canon is the Pali one, which is, I think, the shortest, like, complete edition in translated into English is like 30 books. You you have yeah well no I mean you can get like there's you can get a condensed version but, I, mean, of the, I want, have like, like the, on my bookshelf the you know the the like a poly canon it's the short middle there's three it's a there's you know different volume sets of the different like uh, divisions in it the tip mm -hmm. it's mostly by length so they have long discourses short discourses medium ish length discourses and those are three three or uh, there's several i forget exactly how many but like uh, the unabridged one is well that's what i'm saying so even yeah. that that the the, the abri but those are abridged because there's a lot of repetition they'll just repeat the same you know paragraph or multiple paragraphs over and over again um so they cut that out typically in the in the versions they produce but yeah it's it's you know a couple it's like a dozen volumes i think if it's um well the, unabridged. Yeah, but the point yeah and the point is that that's it's the poly canon right that's canonical writings. This is before yeah. we even get to, to commentaries right. or anything like that. Yeah. 
Um, so on that on that note of like canon and um, and stuff, I thought it would be good to just uh, give a little bit of the lay of the land. We, we we've talked about a lot of these terms before, um, particularly when in the context of uh, the the Nagarjuna readings we've been doing, which we will return to. I just want to make that clear. We will be coming back. Um, but uh, you know, it's one of these things where we're kind of doing this off the cuff, and obviously this is just a labor of love, and we're not <laughs> in any sense professionals. And this is just sort of you know trying to make this material more accessible to people who may be uh, hearing any of all of this, any of this for the first time. So, um, but but to maybe go back to kind of one hundred and one and start at the basics um, when we're talking about a canon in that sense, right? Um, Buddhism, like the Buddhist textual tradition goes back basically uh, you know the, the way we have it now to the um, the historical buddha the buddha that we call the buddha of our age the, the fourth buddha in our universe so to speak um buddha shakyamuni who when people talk about the buddha that's we mean that guy <laughs> he's the um and buddhism says you know in our kind of universe there's going to be a thousand buddhas over over you know the length of the time that our universe exists and um the, the one that we have now is the fourth and so when when this um when when our buddha buddha shakyamuni taught the dharma he attained enlightenment bodhgaya and then he started teaching uh you know he he at first taught um well it depends on sort of your who you, who you ask but the but the, the basic version is he he first taught in in the heavens to his, some of the gods and then he and then he came back down to earth and taught some um some humans and so those humans that he taught became his sort of normal human disciples and these were the first monks or bhikshus um in 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 buddhist terminology and and there were also you know female bhikshunis um from fairly early on but uh the 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 key thing is that he he just sort of taught more or less extemporaneously it, it wasn't necessarily all that well structured he would just you know the 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 day in the life so according to these earliest records is is um you know he'd wake up in the morning do meditation for about four hours um typically with his disciples nearby and then um they would all break to eat something he may or may not teach at some point there sometimes um he would you know invite other people to, t to teach or someone you know someone from the crowd would ask a question and one of his disciples would would give an answer or or, or talk you know teach in that way and and um the buddha would say yeah that's that's good you did that very well said and uh and so the the way that buddhist scriptures where you can call like scripture as a sort of category um the the word in in sanskrit and pali is uh, well in sanskrit it's sutra in pali it's sutta um which means thread and it's a it's a like a thread like a you know like a linear kind of text um, and this is a word that goes, you know, it's a long history there with, uh, with, with Sanskrit. And obviously that's the same word as, you know, the Kama Sutra or whatever, but the Kama Sutra is just one, like the love Sutra, right? Like Kama means to love or desire. Um, and these are sutras and these were, the sutras were just discourses and they always start the exact same way, which is thus have I heard, evam shruti mayam, uh, which is, you know, I like once upon the the author, whoever the author is, and these are not attributed typically. Well, not typically. These are never, never, ever attributed to like an author. It's just some guy, some person, some anonymous, you know, scribe or whatever. Actually, initially, these weren't even written down. They were just uh, orally transmitted um, and, and people would memorize them. Uh, and and 
the 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 person who is sort of recording this would say, well, I heard once upon a time the Buddha was in such and such. I mean, he was at the Deer Park in Sarnath, or he was at you know the Vulture's Peak in Rajgir, or he was somewhere, someplace in time, some rich dude's house, or, or there's you know various locations, um, typically in kind of northern India, what's nowadays northern India, and um, and you know somebody asked a question or something happened, or the Buddha just sort of said, you know, monks, uh, what would you say is like the the biggest obstacle, and and the monks would be you know one monk would you know give some kind of dumb answer maybe and. Buddha would say, no, I don't think so. And another monk would give maybe a better answer. And, and there's different kinds of scenarios, but they all sort of go the same way, which is, which is, um, you know, thus have I heard once upon a time in this time and place, the Buddha, you know, there's things happening. And usually it's the Buddha speaking primarily, not always. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and then it just kind of goes from there. Those are all the, that's the oldest kind of Buddhist scripture. That's the oldest kind of Buddhist literature. And those are the sutras. Um, then in, um, in, in sort of parallel with the development of the sutra literature, but a little bit later, it's pretty clear that these are the earliest texts that we have, you know, text and you've got to put, you know, what is a text? I mean, that's a whole like philosophical question. I won't even go into the point is that, you know, these were sort of orally transmitted more or less stable, particularly past a certain point in time, um, you know, things that weren't necessarily written down, but had a kind of some, you know, nevertheless had a certain kind of fixed form to them because of the fact that they were memorized. So uh, eventually, you know, because in, in, you know, so, so in the Buddha, would, let's, let's say the Buddha would, you know, and it was teaching, you know, what is, you know, you would ask the monks, you know, what is the, what is the, what is it that you desire? And you say, well, I desire form. And, I'll, and he's like, okay, well, what is form? Right. Okay. Well, form. There's this many. There's these this kinds of form. There's visible form. There's you know things you can touch. There's there's things you can hear, and so on. And and so when the when when the Buddha would give these teachings, there were sort of these um, there was a framework for that teaching. It was it was not explicit. It was not anything systematic. It was it, at least at first. It was just sort of how he was teaching. But eventually, over time, the there was a certain kind of um, there was an effort that was made at systematizing all of the different frameworks that the that the Buddha used when he taught. Things like you know, there's five elements or the twelve links of dependent origination that we've talked about. Um, the the six sense organs, you know, there's the five physical plus the mental organ, and then you have the six kinds of object that those six uh, faculties contact, and then you have the six kinds of consciousness um, that the, that are generated by the contact between the um, the, the sense faculties and the sense objects. Even just this idea of like, you know, you have a, a sense faculty contacts a sense object generating a sense consciousness. That itself was not, you know, this is a, it becomes a common trope over time because these things develop in tandem. But the point is that it, it, it eventually the, you get uh, these very highly learned scholars who would have probably memorized most, if not all of the, the um, sutras that were, that were, um, that were floating around at the time, and they, in in their effort to systematize what was kind of you know very loosely held together at the time, we just say like, well, these are all the different categories, these are all the different sort of ways in which we you know we need to think about how the Buddha taught and, and put it together in all kind of one thing. That became the Abhidharma. Um, the Abhidharma goes, you know, it, it, it sort of this is we don't we don't really know a lot of this stuff because none of it was written down, especially at first, and and it took you know hundreds of years for this stuff to coalesce and develop. 
But but basically, the way to think about Abhidharma is you had these extremely learned monks who memorized all this stuff, who were trying to impose some kind of order or systematicity onto just, you know, enormous amounts of material. And there was, you know, often typically the Buddha would sort of teach in a in, in the same kinds of ways. There's a lot of, um, you know, there's an inbuilt sort of systematicity. They weren't just making it up. Um, but yeah, the, the Abhidharma is, is primarily just sort of lists of all of the different categories of the different, you know, things that the Buddha taught about. Um, the, um, the th and so those are the two, and the first, the, the two, two out of the three. So the, the, there's three big categories of Buddhist scripture. There's this, there's, and, and when people going, this again goes thousands of years back, when people talk about Buddhist scripture or Buddhist literature, you know, Buddhist canon, Buddhist texts, the, you, you typically refer to three baskets, three baskets, Tripitaka um, or Tipitaka in, in Pali. And these are the sutras, the Abhidharma, and then the Vinaya is the third. And this is, the Vinaya is kind of funny. The Vinaya is the, it, it's sometimes called like the law or the code of monastic conduct. And it is, that's where all the rules that the monks have to follow are, of which, I mean, there's different kind of, versions of it there's different compilations and there's usually about two or three hundred um rules that monks have to follow some of them are pretty straightforward and they you know like things like don't have sex <laughs> right like monks are supposed to be celibate don't kill don't lie don't steal okay these and this is where we get the vows you know that you can take as even as a lay person um vows against killing lying stealing sexual misconduct and intoxication um and those are the five great vows but there's all kinds of other vows that monks have to take things like uh, my one of my personal favorites is um uh, monks aren't supposed to swim and there's always like little stories the, the, <laughs> I didn't the, know that <laughs> oh yeah no well you okay so there's the, the thing about the Vinaya is there's like the Vinaya is just a treasure trove it, it's it's full of hilarious stuff um, and it's all kind of like it, it just gives you a, a, a little glimpse into you know life for these people in North India ish area you know 2000 plus years ago so there's the story with the with the swimming is um, I believe it. Well, I can't even remember what it was. It was like the the at first there was one rule like the the you the monks weren't allowed to be near bathing women because obviously obviously produce produces a you know near occasion of sin and temptation. So some very clever monks uh, decided that they were going to circumvent this rule by okay we're not going to be around bathing women we're going to go swimming like in a river near the women who are bathing. To like avoid, so we're like it, it kind of almost Talmudic in a way. Like they're 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 avoiding breaking the letter of the law by um uh, by by violating its spirit. And so the Buddha said, "Aha, very clever. Um, you're not going to do that anymore. <laughs> so uh, monks aren't monks aren't supposed to go swimming. Um, there's also things like uh, related regulations related to uh, what kind of begging bowl you're allowed to use um, because monks, you know, especially at that time, they were supposed to go begging every day for their um, for their meals. And uh, so and there's regulations about, you know, what kind of clothing they're supposed to wear, the fabrics and so on. Um, basically, the rule is, yeah, there, is there's hundreds. There's, as I said, there's hundreds of rules. It's, it's all. But there's always what's interesting is there's always a story attached. There's always some kind of story attached. And there's a lot in the stories is in the vineyard are are frequently um just they're great they're great little sort of vignettes but but the point is that that is the third basket as it's called um in the in the buddhist canon so typically when people talk about like the buddhist canon either if they're not you know if people who kind of know a little bit more will will often 
what they'll mean is the the three the the Pali Tripitaka, um, particularly if you're talking about you know Pali Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism, um, but also people often just kind of just mean the the because the sutras are. I mean, no, nobody really does. Abhidharma is extremely dry and technical, and there's all kinds of cool stuff, especially if you're interested in philosophy. But you know, historically, it's been um, a very specialized field, and and likewise with the Vinaya, you know, the, giant monasteries would have their own. You know, they had they had to regulate their communities, and you you had essentially institutions of what, what amounted to Vinaya lawyers, like like monks who were lo- like experts in Vinaya regulations who were essentially lawyers for the, you know, if someone was accused of violating this or that um, oath or whatever, or, or doing this or that, then, you know, you had to, you had to have legal experts and, and there, this Vinaya functioned in a way as, as a kind of a law. But um, what most people are most interested in and where, you know, most, you know, the focus has been historically and also, you know, in, in nowadays is in the sutras. And um, yeah, there's all kinds of interesting sutras. There's all kinds of uh, very, you know, uh, it's, um, I wouldn't necessarily, people often ask, you know, well, I'm, I'm interested in Buddhism, you know, what should I read or should I read, you know, people who like do a little research are like, oh, should I read <laughs> the sutras? Um, I would typically recommend against that. It it it's not actually historically a way that anyone would ever ever go about uh, learning more about Buddhism. I mean, it's a noble intention, and it's a good idea, you know. And of course, it's great to to do that um, at some level. But um, yeah, the the sutras typically it's, it's they're, again they're all kind of same. You know, past a certain point, it's like there's some great ones. There's a lot of them that are just sort of like okay, and and it's not um, necessarily all that beneficial to just like plow through the whole uh sutra pitaka like just like that it, it it's probably not going to benefit you all that much uh, that much to be honest but I, i've been talking i'm curious what you all have to say i've been uh, i just want to i want to lay that out there to just give a kind of basic sense to begin with it's you know i mean it's interesting because you know you're already starting with such an enormous amount of material with the pali buddhism that's used in the theravada tradition i guess that pretty much is more or less like i mean that would more or less be like what is uh, used in theravada but when you get into mahayana um like for instance the tibetan uh, canon is is like far larger even than this i mean like you add a bunch of uh, additional yeah i was gonna that... get into the the mahayana okay. stuff and the tibetan stuff a little li- i wanted to like just do the basics first but i do want to c- talk about that a little also yeah so i um <clears throat> you, you guys know i'm this uh uh i practice in the thai forest tradition um and that i'm a big fanboy of the american monk uh who goes by the uh poly name actually well no uh well, a mixed Thai and Pali name, uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, and um, who's given um, American name is Jeffrey de Graff. And he's, uh, in my opinion, the, the foremost translator. Not just uh, your opinion. Today. Yeah, that's a lot of people's opinion. He's quite. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, he's, a, he's an extremely learned person, um, even if he weren't a great monk. I think he's a great monk. I think he's a great teacher of the Dharma qua dharma you know <laughs> but um even if he were just a lay person and a scholar i think he'd be um extremely uh, an important person um you know it's thai backwards and forwards so he's a great resource on anybody who's interested in the particular thai teachings um especially in that thai forest tradition but he also knows pali backwards and forwards um and very importantly 
he's got a way with words in English, right? So that being a good translator is much more than just knowing the language that you're translating from. It's also being able to having mastery of the language that you're working into. And uh, Wyatt asked in the um, in the comments if there's a if there's a definitive you know best translation for this stuff. And I will demur on that because I don't really know. And since I don't know Pali or Sanskrit, I'm not in a position to say you know what's best or whatever. However. I studied the Dharma for a long time, and I, I, I also um, big into like English literature and and using the English language correctly, or at least using it well. And in my opinion, um, you really, especially if you want to use the Pali sources, um, you can't do any better than the translations of Jeffrey Graf slash Tanisaro Bhikkhu. And he's got a, a couple websites that I don't think he actually runs the site. I think he has um, some lay people or maybe some of his monks uh, running the sites for him. But he's got one called dhammatalks.org and another one that's really good called access to insight.org. And so you can find direct translations of the the actual sutras there. I don't think he's done the whole, all of them. Maybe he has, I don't know. But, um, and then if I, you know, I can, we can come back to the the source material and stuff, but since I'm on a on this thread now, um, for more contemporary books, I really, really highly recommend for anybody who's interested in getting their minds around the the sutras, um, a book called um, that's available online called uh, "Wing the Wings to Awakening," and it's by Tani Sarobiku. Um, and you know, because as uh, Dharmakirti said, wading through the entire all these sutras is like a monumental task and frankly pretty boring and not ne not necessarily even the best way to to go about things even if you you know i, I think you know there, there's something there's a part of me that's like yeah i'm, I'm gonna do that just because it's so contrary and it's so like you know old school and hard ass or whatever um but it, it may not even be the best way to, to go about things anyways this book the wings to awakening the premise of it is that at least according to tani sarabiku that that Towards the end of his life, towards his later teaching, the Buddha repeated uh, on multiple occasions that certain of his teachings were more key than others. Um, and I, I always like to remind people and remind myself on this podcast that Buddhism is a path. The Buddha taught it as a path. The point of the teachings is to get you somewhere, um, to get you to enlightenment. And all of the teachings are should be viewed in that sense, um, that they are... They're supposed to be like skillful means, you know, skillful teachings to get you somewhere. It they're not necessarily teaching. Well, I'm gonna get in, I'm gonna get down into some thickets if I start phrasing it that way. Um, I'll just back up and say, the wings to awakening is taken from these recommendations of the Buddha himself. So they they come from the Pali Canon, and where the Buddha says, of all my teachings, these are the ones that are really important. And he said he says that in a few different places, but he really repeats it with certain teachings. And so what Tani Sarobiku did was take those teachings that the Buddha repeated were so important, um, and then basically show the translation of, of those teachings, right? So there's um shoot, I had it in front of me, but I, I don't right now. We we can come back to it later, maybe. But um so so show you where they are in the text and give you a nice, clear translation of them and add his own commentary. So since he has read all of these things and has translated them and everything, he's a great source for, for that. So uh, to dodge the question of what's best, I, I'll just dodge it. I, I really don't know. But if anybody's interested, um, just look for that book, The Wings of Awakening. It's available free online um, 
just learn poly bro like just do yeah it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I, I highly recommend that. It's a great entry point, at least uh, to the uh, the Theravada side of Buddhism. In fact, the best entry point I've well, ever thank you, found. Thank you for that recommendation, Oren. I'm, I hope um, people take you up on that who are interested uh, in learning more. Yeah, there's just, I mean, it's a, there's a dizzying variety of, of stuff to learn. I mean, it's not, and no one, there's no, it's really just a question of what your interests are and, you know, sort of what's important and what you think. Yeah, I mean, there's it's literally impossible, basically, to to for any one individual person to have command over all aspects of this. It's not, and and that the and 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 as Aura quite rightly pointed out, the you know the Buddhism, quote unquote Buddhism or Buddha Dharma is, um, it's not about it's not a dick waving, dick measuring, I should say, contest, right? It's not like I you know there's always a per there has, there's, there's some sense of a purpose like the the kind of the 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 foundation of it and the goal of it is liberation from suffering it is you know perfect enlightenment and it, whatever facilitates that is good and whatever you know doesn't facilitate that it needs to be left behind and so when you're talking about something like text i think text um particularly for westerners uh, our society is so complex. Our minds are so complex. You know, sometimes there's a there's a certain kind of rhetoric in some of this literature and some of the tradition about you know, uh, oh, you have to leave intellectual stuff behind, and that's true at a certain level. You do, and and it over intellectualizing is a very real danger that people get tripped up in all the time. But you know, there's a reason why all this stuff is here. And much of that reason, especially for us, is that, you know, that's just how our minds work as humans, especially as humans of a certain kind of, you know, technological and civilizational sophistication. You you, you, you need this kind of the grounding in the textual, which is not enough to just kind of, for, for the vast majority of people, certainly anyone who's coming at this from a kind of intellectual interest, like you're not you need to see that intellectual interest through. And, and one of the ways to do that is to study the textual material. I think that is really important. Um, but yeah, so, so we're, we're, I guess that we're, were we done. I wouldn't say done, but like, was that enough? You think on, on that kind of side of it for now? I think it's a good introduction for, I, I think people get what we're talking about. And um, uh, yeah, well, there's a lot of books I want to talk about. So I, I would, I personally would like to move on, but why? Oh yeah, sure. Talking. I just wanted to before. But you mean like more contemporary stuff, right? Yeah. Okay, so well, I that just can wanted, wait. It can wait. Yeah. Well, I don't, it doesn't have to wait that long. I just wanted to finish giving a kind of lay of the land. Um. So, so that's all kind of like the earliest stuff. That's what you could most closely associate with the Theravada tradition and uh, the early Buddhist tradition. Then, starting, uh, I mean, who knows, really probably around the time of the birth of Jesus, but like no one really knows. Um, you start seeing, so, so to back up for a second, uh, the, the, when the, um, when the early sutras, you know, are, are um, being, are, are in the early sutras, you know, occasionally you will see a little bit of the kind of, you could say like, supernatural actors i don't it's not a very good word it doesn't really apply in a Buddhist, the whole con the concept doesn't really make much sense but let's say non-humans sometimes make appearances but typically it's all humans that are the actors the the speakers and the listeners in the um in these sutras typically 
um, starting around that time, you start to see um, sutras or texts, and these are these are much more commonly um, th these start getting written down earlier. Like the early the the um, the earlier literature is almost exclusively oral for the for the first several hundred years of its existence, up to maybe even more, probably more than that, actually. Um, then you start seeing this other, these other kinds of sutras that um, aren't necessarily exclusively oral, which is to say they, they um, are often being written down somewhat, you know, uh, quickly. Um, and they often involve, typically, I would say, involve non-human actors, both speakers and listeners. The kind of most common setup with these is um, it'll still start. It always still starts with you know evam um, maya shruta. Uh, you know, I, thus have I heard. But then it's like, thus have I heard. You know, one time in some kind of like cosmological Buddha realm, the you know Buddha Amitabha, this kind of ur Buddha of like you know cosmological Buddha, or or maybe the or maybe he, not him, maybe one of these you know Avalokiteshvara, one of these you know. Um, extremely uh, advanced bodhisattvas or, or other Buddhas or whoever will will start talking and the the our historical Buddha often will just kind of listen and at the end of and then other people will t you know, people will ask you know Avalokiteshvara or whomever questions and at the very end the Buddha will be like yeah that's great and and that's the that's the sutra and and that is the kind of earliest. Um, Mahayana literature and these are sometimes not always especially in the early stuff is not necessarily um, explicitly called Mahayana like what is the Mahayana and the origins of it or one of these questions it's probably unresolvable who really knows doesn't really matter um, but the point is that these sutras are also typically longer they tend to be quite long um, especially as, as the as you know the centuries roll on these get quite long and um, and they typically involve either other Buddhas or cosmological bodhisattvas or, you know, just sort of very um, ethereal beings that will be the ones primarily who are giving the teachings. So often also uh, Maitreya, the, the future, the, the he's going to be the fifth Buddha. He's just sort of hanging out in one of the heaven realms until our current um, situation degenerates to the point where basically Buddhism, Buddha Dharma has died out and then he'll come and teach and, and be the fifth Buddha. Um, but he will give some teachings sometimes in, in, in a lot of these texts. And um, so those are the Mahayana sutras. And that's like its own genre of literature, kind of. Um, they're, they're structured as sutras, and they bear important similarities with the earlier uh, non-Mahayana sutras, but they are basically their own thing. And that's really what the Mahayana... <sighs> as a whole kind of develops out of. I mean, again, the question of like, did the, it, 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 you can't really think of it as like the text came first and then tradition grew out of that. I mean, there's something to that, but the, everything is kind of happening all at the same time simultaneously. Even what I was saying before, you know, to complicate the pictures, I don't want to lose people, but this idea, this picture that I painted of like Abhidharma happening, like really Abhidharma is as a genre, as a like systematized thing that's formal. And now we have like, you know, these kind of ironclad, system of it that's happening at the same time that, that the Mahayana is being formulated um, about 200 or so years maybe even a little more than that after the birth of Jesus so like it, it it's all kind of a big mess historically and no one really knows but Jim just giving a general picture here so I'm not super I'm not super familiar with a lot of the Mahayana uh, sutras but mm. I for example 
I recommend to our listeners um, getting a copy of, for example, the Lotus Sutra, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very, very famous one, um, and just reading it almost for fun, because it's it's a head trip, and it's the the difference between these uh, later, if you want to call them sutras, late later. I, I'm saying if you want to call them later, um, and, and the the sort of core canon ones from the time of the Buddha is it's pretty stark and um dk is right that you know the in the Pali and sanskrit canons and the, the original teaching of the buddhas it it is you know it's like the buddha's hanging out and then somebody asks a question and he gives a discourse or he, he agrees or disagrees with somebody and then and that's the end of the teaching and they're super valuable like i, I you know like that's they're, they're great that's, it's great stuff don't the, get me wrong i'm not downplaying yeah, that at all yeah yeah it's super core um, however, like in the Lotus Sutra, there's like this entry, I haven't read it in years, but you know, there's these introductory things we're talking about, like the millions upon millions of Buddhas that are opening up right. out of Lotus flowers and descending yeah. from the skies and 28,000 elephants come and like grow to the size of mountains and drop flowers down. I'm making this up, but it's that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Also the Vim- another famous one is the Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra and it's all just kind of, yeah, it's like. Yeah, raining gemstones and the gemstones rain gemstones and the yeah, it's 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 cool stuff. I mean, it's definitely like, you know, it, what what's exactly going on there? People have been arguing about for a long time, um, particularly in the kind of early twentieth century. People were like, well, this is obviously just kind of nonsense, um, and and people didn't really want to take it very seriously. There's been a little bit more sophistication since then in terms of you know what exactly is being recorded or what the purpose of it, you know, sort of more sophisticated literary analysis, leaving aside a kind of religious way of looking at it. But, um, yeah, so the, the Mahayana Sutras, the, the, the big, the earliest, actually, that's not even really true, but the kind of the, the, I wouldn't even say the earliest so much as the, the first cohesive body of Mahayana Sutras is what's called the perfection of wisdom literature, um, the Prajnapadamitha. Um, and that is basically what Nagar like when we're reading the Mulamadhyamaka Karikas, like the Nagarjuna is self-consciously providing a kind of commentary on the perfection of wisdom literature. And we've mentioned it before. I don't even remember in which episode. I'll have to look it up. But we've mentioned it before, and and it comes. And, you know, if, but the the basic idea there is, you know, if you want to uh, get the, the 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 real kind of heart of it. Haha is the Heart Sutra, right? Which is like there's a whole kind of complicated textual history there. It doesn't matter. Point is, we have this thing now called the Heart Sutra that's very valuable, very condensed, very pithy. Um, it's basically a teaching given by Avalokiteshvara that the Buddha then endorses at the end. And um, yeah, he just says, you know, form is you know because that's the thing. And so in these Abhidharma categories, right? You say like, you know, what what are the different kind of elements of reality? Well, there's you know form. There's like your six kinds of sense organs that I was talking about and your six kinds of sense consciousnesses and so on. And much, not all, but much of the Prajnaparamita literature, this perfection of wisdom literature, perfection of wisdom sutras, is basically like just going one by one through these Abhidharma type categories and being like, well, you say there's, you know, form. Well, form is empty of form. You say there's eye. Well, eye is empty of eye. You say there's ear. Well, ear is empty of ear. You say there's nose. Well, nose is empty of nose, and so on and so on and so on and so on. And then it's like, okay, well, what does it mean to say something is, okay, you say nose is empty of nose, form is empty of form. But what is what is emptiness? What do you mean by that? And that's what Nagarjuna is basically explaining. It's like, well, when the perfection of wisdom literature says, you know, this is empty of this, that is empty of that, this is empty of that, that is empty of this, <laughs> uh, 
you know, when he said when he says empty, like what is that? What does that mean? And that is what Nagarjuna is trying to. It, in, it's not something that you can really rationally comprehend. I mean, we've sort of talked about this a little bit in our in our series on that, and I, I highly encourage anyone who's interested to to check that out. Um, you know, it, it's it's not exactly. I mean, there's a kind of conceptual element that there has to be for our understanding, but it's not ultimately something that's going to be capturable by language, by you know, rational thought. Like you, you kind of you use rational thought to a point where you get it, and then in the getting of it, <laughs> rational thoughts are sort of collapses of its own accord, so to speak. Um, and, uh, or the internal contradictions of that would be main, you know, the, 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 the structural, uh, incoherence, the, 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 in order, the condition of, to put it, I, I'm coming out of like a kind of 20th century philo- philosophy world sometimes. And, um, so for those of you, I'm going to expound for just the 30 seconds, maybe for those of you who are out there understanding what I'm talking about. It's very similar to Derridian philosophy in a certain way, where what Derrida is getting at is the condition of possibility in, in a Kantian sense, like there's a transcendent almost, the condition of possibility for something like intelligibility, for the intelligent, like in other words, in order to be able to understand rationally, you know, uh, the semantic content of a meaning statement. Like we can sort of transact ourselves in the world, but, um, if you actually really examine like what is going on in language, what is going on in thought, the condition of possibility for it is a certain kind of internal contradiction. There's no rational thought that doesn't have, as the condition of possibility, if it is its core that can't be its core because if it, you know this sort of gets you get lost in the paradoxes. But the point is, you you, you can't have rational thought that isn't at some level self-contradictory. You, 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 could, you have to work hard sometimes to like expose it, but it's always there because if it weren't there, then you wouldn't be able to think, you wouldn't be able to use language. And that is what Nagarjuna is, at every step of the way, that is what he's sort of uh, demonstrating. He's, he's, he's showing anytime you try to sort of say, well, maybe if we have this foundation here, maybe we have this, re- this one, this, we, can, we can seek refuge for like real kind of solid foundational meaning in this one little place over here. He's like, no, it doesn't work that way. And he goes, you know, and again, if you don't believe me, then check out our series. And if you have some kind of, you know, you think you found something by all means, um, you know, we can, we can try to hash it out. But I, I'm just, you know, to sort of cut to the end there, like I, I can pretty, I can guarantee, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite certain, 100% sure that there, you will, it will always be exposed. There is no, there's nowhere to hide with this. And that's what the, uh, that is the emptiness, so to speak. That is one way of kind of trying to wrap your head around what emptiness would mean if it could mean something in that kind of a way. Um, I don't know how much sense I'm making. I hope that reached someone. Uh. <laughs> I guess if you wanted to shorten that down, I mean, you're trying to... I, emptiness is essentially just like this kind of tonic against conceptualization and reification of, yeah. of, of whatever you might be interacting with. Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good way to put it in a condensed way. Uh, I was since since our friend Storm couldn't be here this week, I'll, I'll mention a couple other uh, texts that that take this word sutra. And by the way, on the Heart Sutra, we um, for our listeners and also to remind you guys, uh, several months ago we were kicking around the idea of doing an episode just on the Heart Sutra. Yeah, that wouldn't be a bad and, idea. Um, you know, we have now our list keeps getting longer instead of shorter. Whatever, <laughs> that's fine. But uh, I, I, I do like that idea. I think once I we're done with the important. with the MMK, I think that would be it would be instructive for people like having gone through that to then go through the heart surgery and see like see, 
The Heart Sutra is an amazing text, yeah. and it's, uh, really... it's interesting because it's quite short. You know, it's we've got some of these things are interminably long, like the Lotus Sutra, for example. Right. The Heart Sutra is quite short and like very short, um, and uh, but it's it's jam packed with like yummy uh, Dharma goodness. <laughs> um, and I was just going to mention, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Why I'm gonna let you speak in a minute. I'm gonna let you finish, but. Um, also, a couple other texts that take this word sutra are um, are texts that are central to Chan Buddhism um, or Zen Buddhism. Zen just being the Japanese form of Chan, which is the Chinese form. But that school of Buddhism, um, they they consider very core to their to their school the uh, the Diamond Sutra, um, which is relatively short too, which is a dialogue between the Buddha and one of his monks, uh, Sabuti, about uh, well, I haven't read that one in a while either. <laughs> I don't remember. But it, it has to do with emptiness as well. And then very interestingly, uh, something that the Chinese call the, the Platform Sutra, which takes a totally different form from all these other books that we're talking about, which is essentially just uh, like a biography almost of the man who's considered the first uh, the first patriarch of, of the Zen tradition, a Chinese monk named uh, Hui Nung. And it's the story of Hui Nung um, interpreting the Diamond Sutra and interpreting some some verses of poetry and how the sort of the wisdom that he came out with. So if for those of you out there who are interested in Zen and you can only find, you know, these uh, these uh, California Dharma type of stuff about it and you want to get a little bit more hardcore, it's very easy to find copies of the, the Diamond Sutra and the Platform Sutra. Often they'll be published together. And you can you can read those, through those in a couple of days and get a, a real great taste for the, the flavor of the original uh, Zen teachings. Yeah, Cheddar has mentions that uh, Bodhidharma is the first patriarch, which I was like, I thought it was Bodhidharma. Ah, uh, yes, well, yeah. very, very yes, that is absolutely <laughs> true. He is the first yeah. patriarch. It doesn't matter, it's whatever. Actually, but yeah, no, I, I, believe, yeah. I, I, I was like, I, think, I thought it was Bodhidharma. Anyway, no, it's right. Yeah, but but yeah, so Chan, so this and 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 Chan, which is the, actually the Chinese translation of Jnana, which is like sometimes you translate meditative absorption. There's four Dhyanas in in Pali Buddhism. Um, for like kind of stages of um, meditation, uh, typically rely. I mean, there's a whole kind of complicated textual history there. Basically, the Chinese uh, absorbed Buddhism primarily from about the year 200, 300 thereabouts until about the year 500, 550 thereabouts. Like, it's a kind of interesting question. Like, why? Why did stuff that was written in India past about the year 600 just not make it into China? It just didn't make it into China. And, and, and you know, it was sort of, we don't really know why. I mean, the, the kind of simple answer is because the Chinese pilgrims that brought, like, primarily Xuanzang and uh, I Ching, who went to India and just brought, like, multiple, um, like, donkey carts full, just full to the brim of texts. But they went a little earlier. Um, like around that time, uh, I believe Huan Song was around 500. Uh, so that's just what they had at the time. And that's just what made it into China. Um, that's not a complete explanation by any means. But yeah, the, the Chinese Buddhism, particularly Chan, and particularly also, I mean, Chan is actually not even like, like people say, oh, you know, people immediately because of the American thing, they immediately associate Japanese Buddhism with Zen. Actually, actually, uh, <laughs> Jap Jap Japanese Buddhism, for the most part, is not Zen. The biggest form of 
Buddhism in Japan is Jodo Shinshu, which is a type of Pure Land Buddhism, which is a type of Mahayana Buddhism that is not Chan, but is also kind of pre... It's like it, it, it flourished from around 200 to around 500. I mean, obviously still flourishing in Japan and elsewhere. It's not that it went away or and these, these themes are important in every kind of Buddhism, including Tibetan Buddhism. It's not like these things are just alien from the Indian or the Tibetan or other East Asian traditions. Um, but but they really kind of zeroed in on that time period and those texts that were started circulating. We have like, we have, because that's the other thing is a lot of these texts sort of, um, you know, if you read them at face value, they say like, oh, you know, this happened, you know, eons ago or whatever. It's like in the timeless time of whenever. And it's like, okay, well, sure. I mean, maybe, you know, if it depends on how you want it, if people are going to be skeptical, that's fine. If you don't want to be skeptical, I, you know, that's also fine. Um, it, the, the, the fact in terms of, you know, history is we have a textual record that dates to a certain time and place, and we can't say anything concretely before that. You know, that's sort of where I land on this is like, well, we can say that we have a text that dates to like whatever the year 300 or so. Uh, we don't know about b before that. Mm, don't, I, don't I like the image of them coming over the mountains with the donkey cart. I love that. Really yeah. And that's also, I believe that's where the, what you got um, in the donkey cart there. Uh, <laughs> Dharma, isn't that where like the, huh? what is the, 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 legend Dharma. Of the, what is it? The, uh, the, the, like the monkey King and whatever. There's like this, um, oh, I can't remember. There's some famous the like. Journey Sorry? to the West, it's some Chinese, yes. yes. The I Journey to the West is like basically the this kind of mythologized version of um, these pilgrimages, these very dangerous fraught pilgrimages of these, uh, you know, Chinese um, uh, pilgrims who went to go get these texts uh, from India and bring them back to China, which is a very long and arduous journey. And, it's, you know, obviously you're fighting not only nature, but like bandits and stuff. I mean, it's a very big deal, especially in those I'm gonna days. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make a D&D &D campaign based on that. Wouldn't that be this. cool? I, I yeah, like I think that'd be yeah. something like that would be really fun. <laughs> yes. um, but anyway, so to, to try to, I'm going to, you know, try to wrap this up with the historical before getting into the more contemporary stuff. So the that's the, 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 the kind of early Mahayana literature that tends to be associated with um, the perfection of wisdom primarily, not exclusively, and Nagarjuna and, and in, in the later kind of Indian and Tibetan way of, talking and thinking and categorizing the um that's called madhyamaka or the middle way is it tends to like it really zeroes in on this um perfection of wisdom literature these earlier mahayana sutras then starting you know again these dates are kind of fluid but around 300 or thereabouts you start to get uh yet another series of um Mahayana sutras, sutras that are, and these tend to more explicitly describe themselves as Mahayana specifically, whereas earlier of these kinds of sutras wouldn't necessarily do that. And um, this is stuff like the Samdhinirmochana Sutra, uh, the Lankavatara, and so on. And the this is where you start to get uh, the things that eventually get called Yogacara. Um, that's where the Yogacara tradition, the yogic practice tradition comes from. Um, and these... The, the 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 way that this sort of gets categorized um st starting around that time and especially a little bit later on is they say that the the this is sort of the and this is a very kind of indian and tibetan sort of way of talking and thinking but they say that the the um when the buddha just sort of taught right and he sort of said what he meant and meant what he said and it was pretty like you know straightforward um they refer and that's the basically the pali canon so to speak the three the original three baskets tripitaka of the pali canon the sutras the abhidharma and the vinaya um they call that 
the first turning of the wheel of dharma this is a central metaphor for buddhism when you see like buddha, why is the symbol of buddhism often a wheel because the buddha is said to have turned the wheel of dharma um and so the first turning of the wheel of dharma was the teaching of these original three baskets in in pali and so on um the second turning of the wheel of dharma is the ma is these earlier mahayana sutras especially the perfection of wisdom literature that's referred to later on as the second turning the third turning of the wheel of dharma um is where you start to see there's this again it's not like a new concept in the sense of it just completely came out of nowhere but it's explicitly you know it comes out as a thing that people are talking about explicitly in a way that they hadn't necessarily talked about it explicitly before which is um tathagata garbha or the um sometimes called buddha nature i i you know that's not a terrible translation but it it, it doesn't really like the and that's a whole maybe we could talk about that'd be a great topic for another future show the the, the tldr is buddha nature is this is the idea that every being with a mind if you have a mind the nature of your mind in some sense either is buddha or can be buddha kind of depending on how you look at it um and and that's you know that that, that there is no such thing as a being that cannot in principle become a buddha that every being can become a buddha and this is really the foundation of Mahayana practice in a way, because the, again, you know, to, we've mentioned before, but maybe to like, you know, the Mahayana 101 is what distinguishes Mahayana in the, according to the Mahayana from the non-Mahayana is the Mahayana say, it's not enough for me personally to attain liberation from suffering. I have to work until all, every single being in some, and throughout the whole multiverse is free from suffering. And then I can like finally be free myself, but not until every single being without exception, no matter how much I hate them, you know, they, they, they're the worst, you know, whatever shit lib on the planet. Um, you still have to work for their liberation from suffering. Every single one the ants, amoebas, every single one has to be completely free from, from suffering. And then, you know, they take work to attain for them to attain Buddhahood. And then I, I can like pass into Nirvana. That's at least the rhetoric. Obviously, it's a, you know it's a little more complicated than that. We could talk about that maybe on the Buddhism and nationalism episode that we will be doing at some point in the not too distant future. Um, but the point is that that's the, the 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 foundation of that kind of way of thinking is this idea that every being is capable of that. Every being you know has that as their nature, so to speak. And that's the Tagata Garbha theory, and that is the central teaching of what's called the third turning, which is most closely associated with the Yogacara tradition. Um, and subsequent like scholastic philosophy in in Indian Tibet and so to sort of like completely try to finish this <laughs> uh, big you know picture overview um, you have then let's say there's the first turning which is the three baskets of the Pali Canon you have the second turning which is the early Mahayana sutras especially the perfection of wisdom you have the third turning which is the uh, the later Mahayana sutras especially the the stuff associated with Tathagata Garbha or Buddha nature and and Yogacara, especially the Samdhinamochana Sutra and the Lankavatara Sutra, the descent into Lanka and the uh, Sutra unraveling the intent of the Buddha, and um, and then you have and that's all like in the Mahayana world that's all called basically Sutra and that would actually even the Mahayana you would like put that essentially into the Sutra category or like the Buddha the Buddha's word category Buddha Vachana, then in in addition to that, but kind of separate from it, 
you have what's called Shastra or like commentaries. And this just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And I won't bore you or continue. I mean, that's a whole other kind of big topic. But that's where you get what, what people call about Buddhist, talk about Buddhist philosophy. Typically what they mean is Shastra literature, Indian Shastra literature that was either then translated into Tibetan and then the Tibetans, of course, have their own, they, they take off on this. Um, and and uh, and and you see, I, I actually know, I know a lot less about Chinese Buddhism, but I'm, I, I know that they, they have their own, you know, sort of um, extensive commentarial tradition. But the, the key difference there is it's not, it, it's very explicitly, it, it's attributed to one author. There is a, like a normal human being, more or less normal, you know, sometimes we, we revere these people as great saints and so on. But um, there's a historical human being with a name attached to this text that is representing itself as a text to be um, some, you know, it's commenting on, it's explaining something. Sometimes they're like explicitly commenting on a sutra, or, you know, the perfection of wisdom, for example, or some other sutra. Sometimes they're, they're you know, they're, they're commenting on other shastras, other commentaries. Sometimes it's just sort of like a, it's a, it's an ad hoc kind of publication. It's just like on a particular topic. Um, often in the Indian tradition, logic is a very important topic. So there's all kinds of, you know, back and forth about what is logic and how does it work and how do you make a proper logical inference and this kind of stuff. Um, people spend careers on that kind of stuff. Um, but the, um, the bottom line is, is you have all these, all these commentaries. And so the big, and, and so when, if you ever hear people talking about the Tibetan canon, um, the, to sort of finish this before now we can get into the contemporary stuff or and thank, thank everyone for your patience the uh, Tibetan canon there's there's sort of two big divisions there's a, or, or, yeah, two big categories of it and one is this category of the Buddha's words um, which is su primarily sutras and then also because and this is I'm not going to even go here right now but tantras are also considered to be words they're spoken by the Buddha essentially so the, the, the Tibetan canon um, there's the, the one division is the Buddha's words, which is sutras and tantras. And about two thirds of that actually is tantras because there's just so many tantras. Uh, and then the other big division is the commentaries. And that's about, um, in, depending on like, you know, which manuscript you're looking at, the, the, the Buddha's words division is about a hundred thick volumes and the commentaries are about 200 thick volumes so when someone says you know oh you know religion is just you know reading one book for the rest of your life like keep that in mind maybe that you know the, the tibetan canon that sort of it's just a snapshot of a certain amount of material that was in india that was then translated from primarily sanskrit into tibetan um around the year one th from about the year 700 to about the year 1200 uh that that's like 300 thick volumes of stuff. And that's just the stuff that was translated from Indian languages into Tibetan, leaving aside stuff that was written in Tibetan that I'm not even going to talk about now because I want to talk about more contemporary stuff that's more generally applicable. Uh, I think that, I think that, I think that's a good for a general overview. Yeah. Very much so. Yes. I think I've, I've heard like something like only like 5% or so of the Tibetan canons Very actually ever been translated into English. Very little. So I mean, to be fair, it's most of the most important stuff has been, um, particularly on the like sutra side. Um, you know, a lot of it is nece not necessarily of the greatest quality. Like we need desperately a better translation of the Samdhinamochana Sutra, um, which I don't think exists in Sanskrit anymore. A lot of this stuff like Beijing the Chinese government has like manuscripts in archives that they don't let anyone touch. They're starting, they're starting to slowly, little, little, little. 
But um, a lot of this stuff, you know, we if, they, they, we've, if Beijing does have a manuscript, we're not aware of it. And a lot of stuff, just, they don't even have manuscripts. It's just, you know, when the Muslims came and killed everyone, uh, all those things were lost. And uh, in the original Sanskrit, I mean. So a lot of it only right. exists in Tibetan or China and, and, and or Chinese translations. Um, those are the big like languages that, that if it doesn't exist in Sanskrit, it often exists in Tibetan and or Chinese. Um, yeah, and very little of that has been translated. There's, you know, there, there, people are starting to sort of work on it. But Tibetan is hard. You know, Sanskrit is hard. <laughs> Chinese is hard. Yep. These are difficult languages <laughs> that require a lifetime of study. And I don't have the time. Who has the time for that? You know, no, so it's, like, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's not really the easiest language in the world to learn. That's for sure. So anyway, so yeah, so that's, I guess, the big, big picture overview. And then, you know, Tibet, in Tibet, people write stuff for a couple hundred years and they, they argue with each other and have all kinds of interesting philosophical disputes um, that we won't get into here. Maybe another time we will talk about some of those. I think there's some cool stuff going on there for people who are interested. But, uh, or you had mentioned that you wanted to talk about like more contemporary, because yeah, that, that's all just the sort of, just I guess to round that out, that's, everything we've been talking about now is sort of, you could say, primary literature. These are all things that were written in Asian languages. Um, you know, so far we haven't really talked about anything that wasn't written at least 700 years ago in terms of the translation and, and really more like 1,000 to, to 1,500 years ago in terms of when it was originally composed. Um, then obviously, you know, Buddhism is a, uh, is a, you know, it's a contemporary, it's a living tradition. There's people writing books now. Some of those books are very good and we should probably talk about some of those. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. We, um, we were kicking back and forth, uh, you know, our subjects, um, for our, um, for our podcast today. And then we're like, yeah, let's talk about, you know, bo books about Dharma. And then I, I went to the gym and I was like, okay, let me think about what books. And I, I, I came up in my head with all the list of, you know, mostly contemporary books uh, that were very useful for me um, when I was first getting started. And then, uh, then I came back and was like, okay, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the textual tradition. I was like, oh, okay. Let's talk about that. So it's a little disjointed maybe to, to talk about these things. Cause it, um, cause it's really two totally different topics. Um, like you said, you know, there's primary sources and then there's basically everything else. Um, nevertheless, um, I, I always try to remember, you know, I first of all, I would like to note that uh, we're not reading aloud all our comments today, but we're getting some extremely erudite comments from our listeners today on the live stream. And um, it's uh, excellent and wonderful. And um, I will say uh, sometimes even just a little, um, uh, I don't want to say surprising, but, and I don't want to say intimidating either, but I just, I'm impressed. Let me put it that way. Um, and we also took time in our California Dharma episode, or one of those, one of those, the couple ones that we did on, on the, the styles of interpretation of Dharma in the West that we really rub us the wrong way to, I, I took time out to read those, like the top 50 sellers in Buddhism on Amazon, you know, and we were, uh, laughing and chuckling and, and, alternately getting like enraged slightly enraged <laughs> some of this stuff i saw someone so, put together like a heat map sorry this is kind of tangent but a, a, no, a, no, a, heat, a, heat, a heat map of like oh my god it was like online twitter sphere buddhism communities like intersect you know like sort of like trying to do a heat map of relationships among things and it was like the the group that was that was listed as the trad buddhist group more trad than the, like the whatever modernizing explicitly group was like uh, Sharon Salzberg 
Oh God! And uh, Tricycle Magazine and shit. I was like, yeah, Tricycle I saw that. I saw Are that you fucking thing, yeah. kidding? Are you <laughs> yeah, fucking yeah. kidding me? <laughs> anyway, so so, so yeah. with that background, with that background and that caveat, I'm going these the the, the things that you know I might just list the titles real quick here because I, me and my long windedness, I might if I start talking about them one by one, I might not get through my list. So here, I already mentioned Wings to Awakening. I really can't recommend that highly enough for people who are interested in sort of core teachings of the original the actual Buddha. Um, and by the same author, there's a, a really great book called The Mind Like Fire Unbound, which I've mentioned before. Um, again, the author is Tanisaro Bhikkhu. And um, that's just a, a fascinating look into how the Buddha's concept of nirvana um, relates to older Indian and Vedic Indian ideas about the nature of fire, the nature of mind. And it, I personally found it extremely useful that sounds um, what was the name of that again i actually i missed it's, that it, sounds great it's called the mind like fire unbound the mind like and fire that unbound. right there that yeah. right there is is the central metaphor of nirvana for yeah. for the buddha and and it talks about how you know we you can translate that as nirvana as the extinguishing of as in the extinguishing of a fire but of course as you guys already know and probably many of our listeners know that's a really imprecise way and in fact you might even just come out and say a dead wrong way of looking at what the Buddha is talking about when he's talking about nirvana, because we think of extinguishing a fire as like killing something and getting rid of it. But uh, in this book, it's quite a scholarly book. He talks about how in India, the fire was considered sort of everywhere all at once until it actually manifested itself as a clinging, eating thing that was eating away or or clinging to a piece of wood or a coal or whatever. And so when the Buddha talks about Put, uh, letting that fire go out or putting that fire out, he's actually talking about releasing that fire back into like its real state um, and 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 to do away with this sort of burning and, and clinging and stuff. So I really recommend that book. It's it's um, it's less of a it's not a page turner, but I, I found it very good. Um, and another book uh, in that same tradition is um, very practical book called Keeping the Breath in Mind. Um, and that is by the great Thai teacher Ajahn Lee. Translation by the aforementioned American guy, Tani Sarabiku. And it is an extremely practical, short, direct, and just almost slightly humorous book about how to do breath meditation. So um, if people who don't have a practice and they're, they're looking to like turn some of this erudite knowledge into a daily practice, you could do a lot worse than just taking Ajahn Lee's advice because he knew what he was talking about. Um, and for for like an introduction to all this stuff that we're talking about um, in a very clear way, a book get, that gets assigned a lot, and I would be curious uh, to hear what DK has to say about it, but is uh, a, a very simple book called What the Buddha Taught by Walpole Rahula. Um, I've heard good things. I have not read that particular book. Um, I, I, have, it, so I have heard good things about it. Like yeah. way back in college when I started getting serious about Buddhism, I, I took a couple of courses at the university level and the courses were middling quality, but that book was assigned <laughs> in both of them, and I found it extremely clear. I've seen, I've seen that on, um, yeah, I've seen that on like lists of stuff like that. The other, the other one that I have, I don't know if I actually read the whole thing, but I, I def, I, I have read some of it, and I, I found it pretty high quality, particularly for people who are just you know getting started or interested or whatever. Is uh, Rupert Gethin's, I think it's called Foundations of Buddhism is um it's a little bit more academic it's not it's it's like it's not um 
it's not practical in that sense. It's 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 a little bit, but it, but it has a lot of the really it, it it has a lot of information. It lays it out very logically. It sort of takes you through. Okay, these are the kind of big picture things, and and it's very useful in that way um, for people who are uh, just getting started. Yeah, for Rahula's book, it, it's a, it's not like a, a practical book either. It's it's just, it's like a it's like a one book version of the history of Buddhism. Okay, yeah. Basically. So then that's yeah. Gethin's book is like that too. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I recommend that. There's a there's a a British guy, a mid twentieth century British guy by the interesting name Christmas Humphreys. Um, That's hilarious. Yeah, he was a lawyer, and he was a, then a later a, he was a prosecutor and later a judge. Um, and he was at the time of in the mid century, you know, um, like forties, fifties, sixties. He was I, apparently like the best known public Buddhist Englishman. Um, and he wrote a lot of books, like 40 or 50 books or so uh, on, on the topic of uh, Eastern religions in general. And he one particular I've read quite a few of them, not 40, not all 40 of them. But one particular book that you can still find in print is a very s simple, powerful little book called Concentration and Meditation. And it's not about Buddhism per se, but it's it's another practical book about exercises for training the mind and it's it's all come coming out of the buddhist literature and the buddhist tradition but he basically just strips out the religion from it and you know i, I have mixed feelings about doing that in general but mr christmas humphreys does it very well and it's a it's a good little exercise for people who are interested in doing um, meditation just for like improving their minds and getting better at concentrating and stuff there's some exercises that are very clearly outlaid in there that i recommend and then the last thing I wanted to say, which is way getting even further afield, um, is a book which was very influential for me, and I also think for our friend Storm King, which is The Dharma Bums by Jack Kerouac, which is a novel. Um, I, really? I, think I mean... People... Yeah, okay, sure. I'm going to explain okay. why. I haven't... I'm gonna yeah, ex... please. I'm going to explain why. So I think most people know who Jack Kerouac is, but if you don't, you know, he's a mid-20th century um, American writer, and he's very famous for his book On the Road um, about basically... <laughs> driving all over North America in an old beat up car with his friend and, you know, having various adventures and stuff. And um, the term beatnik is a, is a derogatory term that, that was initially leveled at Kerouac himself because he called himself and his friends the beat generation. And, um, you know, a lot of this stuff has been kind of ruined, frankly, through the years. But if you go back and read Kerouac's, especially his early books before he got completely alcoholic and unreadable, uh, he, he had a very particular style, and uh, to me, On the Road is not his best book. His best book is The Dharma Bums, and it's the same style of book. It's just him, like, traveling around and meeting interesting people and doing cool stuff, and he writes very sort of poetically, and if you find On the Road and some of his other books, like, kind of hard to read because he, he totally lacks an internal editor. He's a very stream-of-consciousness writer. The Dharma Bums is in the same style, but he just was doing it better then, if you ask me. He was just... Uh, it was a little tighter and, and better. And anyway, it's about Kerouac's um, uh, encounter with the um, the nature poet and student of Buddhism, uh, Gary Snyder, who is a great poet in his own, not a you know, great poet, but a very good poet in his own right. Um, and it's a fictionalized version of, of that and, and Kerouac's encounter with Buddhism. And the reason I recommend it, you know, if it's not your cup of tea, then obviously you can skip it. You know, some people really don't care for that kind of stuff, and it, it's totally fine. Um but it's very romantic and it's very um, 
it's very inspiring for I think for Americans um, coming from a certain cultural milieu that that kind of checking out from the gross part of commercialism and uh, stultification uh, mixed with like just you know gross miscare for your own soul and your own you know the the money the the searching for money and everything in 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 America and and Kerouac uh, sort of juxtaposes that with primarily Zen teachings, but also all kinds of uh, Buddhist teachings. And he didn't really know what he was talking about, but there's a, there's a sort of energy to it um, and a sort of beauty to it. And the last section where he lives at, for a summer as a, as a fire lookout um, in the North Cascades in Washington state um, by himself for, I don't know, three months or whatever, it is, is a kind of a tour de force of, of writing about that sort of wistful feeling of uh, of wanting to find something deeper and and looking to the dharma to do that and the, the ending is quite beautiful in in my in my estimation so i think kerouac gets a bad name um because he was kind of a shitty writer a lot of the time but when he was good he was really good and the dharma bums was very influential for me when i was like a teenager and i still revisit it from time to time well i'll have to keep that in mind i haven't read it i haven't even tried to read it so maybe i'll Maybe I'll give it a give it a whirl. I do. Well, what's, I actually, no, no. Let's go, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Wyatt. I actually didn't know Kerouac actually wrote that much about Buddhism. I thought he was just sort of someone who was attached to it, and but not really that that his writing didn't really cover it at all. Uh, he wrote quite a bit about. It, actually, he has another whole book that's all about it. Um, but that's it's like unreadable. It's un. <laughs> it's not readable. <laughs> DK, what? The, why the skepticism? Just because he's like a, an alcoholic and a. Yeah, I have. Well, not. I mean, alcohol, I mean, you know, Chuck Trimper was an alcoholic too. And, and training um, the mind is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, well, that's what I, I wanted can... to say. Yeah, the the bit for for my personal recommendations, um, and I give this all, all the time. But I, you know, it's been a while since I, I may I'll revisit myself. But um, yeah, Chuck Ch Trimper, who's a kind of controversial figure, but I think is really um, important, is um, is his cutting through spiritual materialism. Uh, also, the myth of freedom is really good, and. Uh, and uh, training the mind and cultivating loving kindness, which is a actually fairly traditionally composed commentary on a very important, like historically important um, text. Or really, I mean, text in the sense of it's a kind of pithy, pith instructions actually um, for for what's called mind training, which is great and it's a very you know something that everyone should check out if you're interested in this kind of stuff. My, my skepticism about Kerouac, yeah, is more just a skepticism related to that whole scene and, and really this kind of, um, I, the, I've noticed that the, the people that I tend to they're like their, them and their politics the least, uh, often kind of, um, implicitly or explicitly look back to this kind of mid 20th century literary mode. It's not even, I mean, I actually kind of like yeah. Ernest Hemingway, but it's like the kind of people who sure. try to, you know, they, they walk around with, with the Hemingway book or something, or they think of themselves as they're trying to live in, in the Kerouac himself was a dilettante and, and his dilettantism is replicated by his fans a lot of yeah. the time. So like, yeah, um, he was also like a, beautiful soul though like he, he was he, he was a he was a beautiful tragic deeply flawed person and um 
most of his books, frankly, suck. Um, but a couple of them are really good. And he happens to be that one of his books that is really good also happens to be the one where he describes. Okay. Well, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah. I just could never, I mean, it's like the, the people who are into like Bukowski and shit. And I'm just like, I don't have time for this. I just don't, I don't know. It's, that's a whole other, other big topic. I, 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 um, uh, I think a lot of people go through a phase where, you know, you're a university student and you're getting into like 20th century modernism and then you just see how stupid and pointless it is. And, and it just sort of, I, me personally, at least it was like, I, I feel like I, I get where that kind of 20th century modernist critique was coming out of. But first of all, I'm now deeply skeptical of the motivations for it. And also I just see where it led, which is nowhere because it's all just nihilistic fundamentally. And I'm not saying that's necessarily true. I, again, I haven't read Dharma Bum, so I can't say that it's nihilistic necessarily. My, secondhand impression is that it's it's kind of like Kerouac from what I understand seems to have understood himself that like even if he couldn't get it himself directly he could recognize that there was something valuable there which um which is good that's good that's a you know that's correct I would say but uh yeah I mean you know this whole it's just I I, I think I think so much of you know because the people the people in the media and the academy in the you know starting um, in the 1960s and 70s who are doing all the kind of bullshit that we're reaping the, the horrible results of today, you know, that was their touchstone. They're in a direct line with those earlier 20th century modernist, you know, they're sort of directly continuing that tradition. And from where I am now, it's just like, okay, well, that just cat that just casts that whole, it's like hard to read Virginia Woolf or whoever and be like, and take it seriously for, for me now, personally, I don't know what you're now we're kind of off track, but whatever, we can end here. Yeah. I mean, my skepticism of Kerouac was, I always thought he was like the uh, kind of inspiration to the whole boomer uh, Buddhism set. But it wasn't his fault. Yeah, you can't blame (laughs) him for his disciples. I'm, 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 that's a general principle that I feel, do feel strongly about. You can't. You know, someone like I don't, I don't I, like Derrida, for example, or in, has problem. I think I think Derrida is better than Foucault. Both of them have their issues. Um, but you know, Foucault had some valuable insights to some extent. You cannot blame all the excesses of of uh, the I, academic thing on on him anymore. Than I don't you can, feel too much of a need to defend Foucault, though. I'm not defending Foucault, yeah. especially. Oh, hey, yeah. yeah, well, <laughs> dude was. I'm just saying, like, you know, when you look yeah. at. The mode Nietzsche, of Nietzsche, I think, is a good example. Example, of that, yeah. Nietzsche, yeah. or you know, you you, you can yeah. you, you can't blame people for their followers misinterpreting them. I, I'm repeating like. myself, but I, you know, Kerouac is very blameworthy for a number of things. But there, there is, uh, like later in his life, he was like a huge icon, right? And uh, he was a, a horrible drunk. I mean, he died from alcoholic hemorrhaging and everything. So this, this is another issue, of course. But um, he there, later in his life, he was kind of a hermit. He lived alone with his mother until she died, and then and then and then he just lived alone and wrote some of his unreadable books and everything. But he was still living off residuals from on the road, which was still very. Pop- and these hippies would show up at his house and like bother him, and he would like look through the like peephole and be like, "Go away." leave me alone and he he was baffled by the hippies like he didn't understand these people at all and he 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 found them very distasteful and everything so you know maybe it's his own fault for doing that kind of thing but it was not in his personality to be be, like boomers freaked him out he was a little older than the boomers anyway enough uh enough talking about carol's life story 
Yeah, well, that's probably a good place to end it. We've gone, I wouldn't say long exactly, but a little longer than, than normal, and that's fine. Um, it's a kind of a big topic, and obviously there's a lot more detail that we could go into. But I think as a kind of general overview and some some book recommendations for people who are interested in that kind of stuff, this is probably, probably pretty helpful. Um, I don't know, that, I don't think, I, I have to go, and I, I feel kind of spent, so I, maybe we'll cover uh, questions and stuff next time if that's okay with you guys. That's fine with me. Yeah, absolutely. Did you have any other parting parting thoughts? Yeah. All right, cool. Well, um, on behalf of us all, all here, uh, thank you all for listening, and we will catch you next time.